This is 1 John 2, 18 through 29. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were all not, all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is the word of the Lord. A few weeks now, and one thing we're seeing in 1 John is, uh, well, let me, let me put it this way. 1 John, along with the rest of the Bible, says you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation, but in 1 John we're seeing you can fake your salvation. It's not possible to lose one's salvation, but it is possible for some to fake their salvation. That's what is happening in these ancient churches that John's writing to. There had been people in these churches, and they had claimed to be Christians, followers of Jesus. They had claimed to have fellowship with God. They had claimed to walk in the light, but they were faking it, really, faking it the entire time. And this has been the case even since Jesus' own earthly ministry. Think about that with me. Jesus had a church of, you know, 12 or so. And of the 12 disciples, there was one who for the duration of Jesus' ministry was Jesus' treasurer. And he was stealing, stealing from the treasury the entire time. Judas Iscariot knew, he knew that he wasn't really on board. He knew that he was a fraud. Judas was with Christians, but he had no real devotion to Jesus. And when he was found out after he betrayed Jesus, he went and committed suicide. But there was another of Jesus's 12 disciples who also betrayed Jesus. His name was Peter. He denied Jesus. He had a massive moral failing just like Judas did. But here's the difference. And this difference is instructive for 1 John and for our time together this morning. Peter came back. Peter repented and was restored. And the difference between Judas and Peter is massive. It's the difference between life and death. Sometimes, friends, people fall 
and come back to Jesus and Jesus' people. That's Peter. Others fall and never come back because they were never really with Jesus or with Jesus' people. That is Judas. Now, in these verses that Rachel read, John gives us another way that we can discern who is who. Who is a counterfeit and who is genuine? He's giving us another way, as he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, to know that you know. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first uh, of two way, three ways. We looked at the first two that ways you can know that you know. In verses 4 through 6, uh, John asks, do you obey? Remember that? Do you obey God's commandments? That's one way you can know that you really know God, that you're genuine and not counterfeit. And the second test of how you know you know is do you love one another? That's chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And then last week, John took a pause to encourage us and to warn us in verses 12 through 17. But now he returns and gives us a third test, a third way that you know that you know. And it's a doctrinal test. A doctrinal test this morning, my friends. Do you believe the truth? Do you believe the truth? This is a test about truth and lies. Look at how often, as you just scan the verses, John contrasts these two ideas, truth and lies. Just as one example, in verse 21, he says, no lie is of the truth. And the way he addresses this final test, this final way you can know that you know is really interesting. In verse 18, he says, it is the last hour and many antichrists have come. Now, our end times uh, desire to hear end time stuff might get triggered when you hear that word antichrist. Uh, this is not talking about the antichrist, capital A, who will come at the very end to deceive the world. Rather, John here, when he uses the word antichrist, is talking about any who oppose the doctrinal core of the Christian gospel. And that doctrinal core is this, Jesus is the Christ. Any who oppose the teaching of the apostles and the teaching of the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ is against Christ, John says, and is actually in the spirit of Antichrist. Now look with me, verse 19, very, very importantly, John tells us that these Antichrists can come from within the church itself. Do you see it? Verse 19, they went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. Why? That it might become plain that they are all not of us. That's the reason that some of these Christians and churches were so confused and so divided and why John wrote this letter. Some had left and were now teaching a different way, a different Christology, which is the doctrine of Christ. They differed on the fundamental question, who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? And that's the all-important question. So the apostle and the pastor and the grandfather of all of them, 90-year-old John, helps them here by giving them and by giving us ways to discern. How do you know you know? And I want to frame this text quickly for you today in three questions that we can ask ourselves and that we can ask, frankly, of others to help discern counterfeit Christians from genuine Christians. So let's look at them together in order. The first question, do you have the anointing? Do you have the anointing? 
these false teachers we've seen. They were stirring up division. They were seeking to deceive and and entice these young churches. And so John, in verse 20, reminds them of what is true of believers in Jesus. Look at verse 20. You have been what? Anointed. You've been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Skip down, verse 27, again. The anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. In verse 20, when John uses that word, the Holy One, he's referring to Jesus. And the anointing is a reference to Jesus' spirit to the Holy Spirit who indwells anyone at the moment in which they repent of sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, in the history of Israel, when a priest in God's temple or tabernacle was ordained or was set apart to priestly ministry, the other priests would come and as a part of his ordination, they would pour olive oil over his head. It wasn't a sprinkling. It was a pouring, a pouring of olive oil so that it would run down their face and, and down their beards. But the scriptures teach that now in the new covenant, everyone receives that anointing. Everyone receives the anointing of the Holy Spirit because in Christ, we are all priests in God's kingdom with full access to him. This teaching from John is really an extension of what Jesus himself said. Jesus said, remember, it's better for me to go away. It's better for you if I leave. Why? Because then I'm going to send another counselor, another helper, the spirit of truth who will guide you into the truth. So John says to Christians, if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit's to guide you and to lead you into the truth, to lead you back to the reality again and again of who Jesus is and of what Jesus has done for us. So when John says, you have no need for anyone to teach you because you have the Holy Spirit, he does not mean, he does not mean that none of us need teachers, period. After all, other parts of the Bible tell us very clearly that this same Holy Spirit that anoints all of us when we come to faith in Jesus gives gifts, and one of those gifts is teachers to the church. Rather, what John is saying is that because true Christians have been anointed with the Holy Spirit himself, here's what we don't need. We don't need spiritual gurus. We don't need spiritual Yodas. And I love Yoda, but we don't need spiritual Yodas who think they have some unique direct insight into God's will that no one else possesses, which is exactly, by the way, what these false teachers were claiming to be. And these people are definitely still around today. John says, because you have the Spirit, you have, he writes, all knowledge. His point is, the Holy Spirit is happy to teach and to lead and to guide all of God's children. All of us. When you take an airplane flight, if you're not flying on Southwest, you know there's first class. And for me, I walk by the first class seats with envy, watching people lay down and having all kinds of space, and they already have a drink in their hand. And I, of course, sit back there with the commoners and usually get a middle seat in between a guy that's like eating a huge bean burrito and someone else who's snoring on this side. There's no first and second class seating 
in the Christian life like there are on airplanes. That's what John's saying here. All of God's children have the Spirit. He does give different gifts, yes, but all of us have insight and knowledge from God's Spirit about who Jesus is. And so one way you can know that you know is if you have the anointing, is if you have the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit as he works through the Word to help you discern what is true from what is false. The great church father and ancient theologian, St. Augustine, he distinguished between what he called outer instruction and inner instruction. Outer instruction, inner instruction. And Augustine says both are good, but inner instruction, by which he means the teaching and confirmation from the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts, is necessary and also confirms, excuse me, confirms outer instruction. And we want to balance both. Some church traditions, especially the Roman Catholic Church, believes really only in outer instruction. Whatever the teacher says is taken as truth, period. And then there's other circles in the evangelical world that only focus on inner instruction. What John's saying is that both are needed. And the inner work of the Spirit, working by the Word, can confirm for us outer teaching, especially when it relates to core doctrinal matters. Especially when it relates to core doctrinal matters like, who is Jesus? The Spirit helps us understand core doctrinal teaching and the relative importance of different teachings. Some doctrines are more important than other ones. Some are more central, some are more peripheral. And we need to keep that in mind in 1 John. John's speaking here about core doctrinal matters, about cardinal truths. In fact, that's exactly where he goes to next. Let's look at the second question. The first one is, do you have the anointing? Do you have the anointing? Yes, if you do, that's a way you can know that you know. The second question, do you confess the Christ? Look at verse 26. John gets to the very heart of the disagreement between himself and these other teachers. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. What things? Go back up. Verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. It's hard to be clearer there, right? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So this is the core doctrinal concept that John wants us to affirm. It's the core doctrinal concept that differentiates counterfeit Christians from genuine Christians. Do you confess that Jesus is the Christ? Do you confess that Jesus is the Christ? Now, if you've been with us for a few weeks, think about something with me here, okay? Right away, there's something we should notice. In the Christian faith, in the Christian faith, there are things we must agree with. There are things we must adhere to and believe. Now, we've spent a lot of time in recent weeks studying this this book, um, saying that you can know about God, right? You can understand intellectual concepts about God that are true and not really know God. In other words, we've seen throughout 1 John that Christianity is not just intellectual assent. Rather, the word know is relational. It's experiential. The demons, James tells us, are orthodox, but they don't know and experience God. 
And John's already taught us Christianity is not just core ideas to agree with. It's a mystical and an experiential relationship with God. If you don't experience God in that way, you're likely not a Christian. But, but now John is super clear with us. Christianity is also not only experiential. It's not only relational. There are propositions. There is truth. There are concepts that exist outside of you, whether you believe them or not, that you must accept and embrace, or you are not a Christian. What John is saying is that truth, truth exists apart from you and from me, whether we believe it or not. And when we encounter truth, it shapes us, informs us. It's popular to say today, as I think most of us know, that truth is what we make it. That truth is subjective. That is not true. It is not true at all. There is objectivity. There is truth with a capital T. That, friend, you must bow to now and submit to now or you're going to bow to it and submit to it later. One day everyone will believe and embrace what is true. There is a moral and a theological order to the universe, and it is just as real as the physical order to the universe. You can bow to it now, or you can bow to it later, but you're going to bow to it. It's like my mechanic has told me on multiple occasions. When my car has like a minor issue, right? And Marianne and I decide we should take the car in. We're about to go on a trip. Let's take the car in. And I take the car in and the mechanic overviews the car and checks it out and says, you need to fix this and you need to fix this and it'll be $23,000, right? (laughs) I'm like, I don't want to fix it right now. And he says, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. You can pay me now or you can pay me later. If you pay me later, it's going to be, it's going to be worse than it is now. That, that's, I think, what John's getting at here. That's how we think of the physical order of things in this world, isn't it? It's how we think of gravity. You can deny gravity all you want now, but if you go and jump off of a bridge, you're going to accept its reality. You're going to accept its reality the hard way, literally. It's the same with theological truth, John's saying. You can deny it now, but later you will accept it. So what is the truth? What is the idea? What is the concept that we must agree with? It's that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is God in human flesh. He is 100% God and 100% man. That was the fundamental issue with these false teachers. They denied that Jesus was the Christ. Let me introduce a word to some of you. These men were likely what are known as Gnostics. Gnostics. We've looked at Gnosticism before when we studied Colossians a few years ago. But it was a very common false teaching in the early church. And Gnostics, among other things, believed this. Listen, Gnostics said, spirits non-physical equals good. Body and physical equals bad. The body for a Gnostic is inherently corrupt, is inherently kind of just icky, right? And so what is the one thing about Christianity that a Gnostic could not tolerate? That God, who is spirit, became what? Body, flesh, that Jesus became a man. 
he couldn't have become flesh because the body is inherently corrupt. In 1 John 4, it's very clear that that's who John's targeting. He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So John is saying this, listen, the core doctrinal standard, the core truth that Christianity stands or falls on is that God became a man in Jesus. The incarnation is true. Jesus of Nazareth is 100% God. And Jesus of Nazareth is 100% man. He was born of a virgin. He was fully human, so fully human that he died on a cross in a fully human way. And his real body, fully human, was buried in a tomb. And his real physical body rose again from the dead after three days in the ground and is right now at the right hand of God the Father. And one day he will come back to judge the living and the dead physically, bodily, really. Jesus is the Christ. God has come down to us. Who denies that today, you might ask? There are no Gnostics around anymore, Luke. Ah, dear friend, wrong you are. In fact, it's very common today. It's very common for people. Now, importantly, for people who call themselves Christians, for people who go to churches in our city, there's hundreds of thousands of them, to say, Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus was a great prophet. Jesus is a wonderful example. But, you know, we're sophisticated people. We're modern people. We're scientific people. We don't really believe that he was literally born of a virgin. That's not the way human reproduction works. And we all know it. We went to great hearts. We don't really believe he literally rose again from the dead. These are, many say, metaphors. They're to be spiritualized. Listen, guys, that's the basic mindset of millions of people who are in churches all over America this morning. And here's the thing. It is a fundamental denial of Christianity. It's a fundamental denial of Christianity. It is not liberal Christianity. It is a different religion altogether. That's what John's saying. He's sort of being hard-edged here, not about do you obey, not about do you love, but about do you believe what is true. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, he says, that he has come in the flesh, that he died and rose as the God-man, you do not believe in Christianity, no matter what you say. Now, people are going to take offense at that. They'll say, we should just agree to disagree, Luke. In fact, Luke, you talk all the time about being partners in unity and open-handed issues. And I'm just a little bit more liberal than you on this topic. Listen, there's a lot of topics that you can be more liberal than me on and that I can be more liberal than you on. And still, we can have fellowship together. Still, we can be believers in the same local church, serving and worshiping the Lord. But this is not one of those issues. This issue is close-handed. He does not say that the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ is indifferent. He says that that one is a liar. One of my great heroes is a man named J. Gresham Machen. He founded the seminary that I went to in the early 20s when the controversy between 
uh, modernist liberal Christianity and conservative biblical Christianity was really hot. And Machen wrote a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism, in which he argues that the, quote, liberal Christianity that many in his day and in his denomination were confirming and affirming and espousing is not Christianity at all. And I want to just read you a quote briefly from that book. Machen writes this, liberalism regards Jesus as an example and guide, Christianity as a savior. Liberalism makes him an example of faith, Christianity the object of faith. If Jesus was only what the liberal historians supposed he was, then trust in him would be out of place. Our attitude toward him could be that of pupils to a master and nothing more. But if he was what the New Testament represented him as being, then we can safely commit to him the eternal destinies of our souls. What then is the difference between liberalism and Christianity with regard to the person of our Lord? Liberalism regards Jesus as the fairest flower of humanity. Christianity regards him as a supernatural person. That's what it means to confess that Jesus is the Christ. Do you confess that Jesus is the Christ? That's the doctrinal test. And let me show you briefly as we finish why it matters so much. Third question, do you abide in the truth? John says that if we remain in what we heard from the beginning, verse 24, we will abide. And verse 25, this is the promise that he made to us who abide in what we heard from the beginning, eternal life. John is saying, remember the gospel I taught you. Remember the message I proclaimed. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, I delivered to you, now listen, as of first importance, cardinal doctrinal issue, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. You know that you know if you hold faith, in the core gospel message that Jesus is the Christ. So why is that message so crucial for you to abide in? Why can there be no compromise between this form of liberalism and between the Christian message? Why is it that if you lose this message, you lose Christianity? Here's why. Because it is drastic. It's drastic. And the very drastic nature of it is what causes many to say, no, 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 that can't possibly be right. But here's what it says. It says that the gospel is that we are so lost, we are so hurt, we are so sinful and so rebellious that it takes nothing less than God coming down to us in the person of Jesus for us to be rescued. If Jesus is just a great teacher, if Jesus is just a good example, if Jesus is only a prophet, then we ultimately save ourselves by being like him. Then we ultimately save ourselves by following his commands. But that is just not true. That is a lie. We can never save ourselves by being like him. Moralism always fails. Moralism always fails. Christianity does not say to you, you have to be a good person like Jesus was. No. Christianity says you must believe in who Jesus is and in what Jesus did, because that alone will save you. How dare you be that exclusive, Luke? I say to you, moralism is much more exclusive than that. 
It's much more exclusive to be a moralist. What does a moralist say to the 'er ne'er-do-wells and the mess-ups and the people who have wrecked their life? There's nothing a moralist can say to that. A moralist can't say someone whose life is a complete wreck, just follow the great commandment a little better and God might accept you. That's exclusive. The inclusivity of the gospel is this. Any no matter who they are and no matter what they've done, if they look to Jesus in faith and trust him and fall into his grace, will be saved. That is Christianity. And to deny that is to lose everything, which is why John says, you know that you know if you abide. If you abide in what you've heard from the beginning, that Jesus is the Christ. It's not a religion for performers and for achievers, it's for failures, it's for screw-ups, it's for doubters like Peter and like Thomas who owned who they were and went to Jesus. If you lose that, you lose everything. So hold on to it. Abide. Remember what you heard. Let's pray.